California Frontier Podcast, Episode 11. The California Frontier Podcast is dedicated to helping you explore the Golden State's unique history, culture, and environment. I'm Damian Bassage, and I'm your host. If you live in California, you've probably heard of the book The Island of the Blue Dolphins by Scott O'Dell. The Island of the Blue Dolphins is a very popular children's novel published in 1960, and it tells the story of Karana, a 12-year-old Native American girl who is the last of her people left alone on an island off the coast of Southern California in the middle of the 19th century. Now, Odell's novel won the Newbery Medal for Children's Fiction in 1961, and since then, it's been a staple of fourth-grade classrooms in California. It was so popular that in 1964, a movie was made based on the novel, and in 1916, excuse me, 2016, a new critical edition of the novel was published. The story of Karana takes its inspiration from the life of a woman known as Juana Maria, or the the lone woman of San Nicolas Island. She actually existed, and in 1853, she was found by the crew of a ship hunting sea otters off of San Nicolas Island, one of the Channel Islands on the Southern California coast. And the captain of the ship, George Nightiver, actually had her taken back to Santa Barbara. And she lived at the home of his family, but died only seven weeks later. Presumably, it seems of dysentery, a stomach illness. And on her deathbed was baptized with the name Juana Maria. A new exhibit dedicated to her uh, recently opened at the old Mission Santa Barbara Museum. And on today's episode, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Rarescheid, who is an archaeologist who helped organize the exhibit. Elizabeth is going to give us some really interesting insights into the life of the real woman on whom Scott O'Dell's novel is based. And she's also going to tell us how the exhibit helps us to get the most out of both the fact and the fiction surrounding this story. I hope you are going to enjoy the interview. So let's listen to it. Ellie, it, I'm really excited to talk to you and to hear, uh, hear more about what you do and what you study. Uh, I think the, the story of your involvement with the exhibit on the lone woman of San Nicolas Island is really interesting. But before we get into that, I'd really like to know a little bit about who you are and your background and what it is that you do now. Okay, thank you, Damien. I'm delighted to be here. So I am a fourth year PhD student in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, I'm an archaeologist by training, and uh, I've been pursuing this for a while now, although I was not always uh, an archaeologist. I actually used to be a mechanical engineer, and I worked in the wind energy industry, designing wind farms, testing wind turbines. I've climbed wind turbines. And 
I like wind turbines. I wish we had more of them, but they don't have emotions. They don't face moral dilemmas. They don't have aspirations or goals. People are a lot more complicated and I think more interesting than wind turbines. So I left engineering behind and decided to become an archaeologist. And my main focus is understanding the process of culture shock. So what happens when one group of people is at interacting with another group of people that has a very, very different understanding of how the world works? How do you figure out what's going on? How do you maybe adjust your worldview to account for these very different people? And what do you do in order to work together, especially if you are forced to work together? Wow, that's, that's really interesting. So, so basically, you decided to, to go into archaeology, and you wound up at the University of Santa Barbara. What brought you there? So I first and, oh, sorry, did, sorry to interrupt one more time. And what got you into California, early California of all places you could have studied Egyptology for that matter? <laughs> well, actually, my advisor studies Egyptology, so that's an interesting mix there. Um, so I've lived in California since 2006. I uh, first well, lived in San Diego. Uh, when I did my master's degree, I did a standalone master's degree at Cal State Northridge. And so I was interested in understanding the missions because I really can't think of more severe culture shock than Spanish missionaries coming here to convert indigenous people where their backgrounds have just no continuity with each other. Um, so that's how I got interested in the missions and the fact that I was in California made studying the missions here uh, just a natural fit. I'm now actually studying the missions in Baja, California. Um, so similar theme, uh, just different missions. I, I got interested in talking to you in particular right now because um, you gave a really interesting talk at the... Um, California Missions Conference in Monterey just a little while ago about um, the lone woman, who, or we know the story as the lone woman of San Nicolas Island, at, and it's and you're working on an exhibit, or you worked on an exhibit at Mission Santa Barbara. So can you tell me a little bit about that story? How well, first of all, what is the the story of? Um, the lone woman of San Nicolas Island, and um, and a little bit about the exhibit. Sure. So the lone woman story we normally think of as starting in 1835, which is when the remaining indigenous Nicolenos were brought from San Nicolas Island to the mainland, and they were brought to the Los Angeles area. Who are the Nicolenos? So the Nicolenos, that is um, the Spanish name for the indigenous people of San Nicolas Island. And where is San Nicolas Island? And San Nicolas Island is one of the southern Channel Islands. Uh, so it is actually part of originally Tongva territory because the Tongva homeland includes the Los Angeles area and the southern Channel Islands. And if you look at a map, 
San Nicolas Island seems very isolated because uh, it's far from the mainland, it's far from the other Channel Islands. Um, but as we'll discuss later, this is actually uh, a misconception about the island. So who was this Who was this woman and why do we know about her story? So when the Nicolaños were brought to the mainland in 1835, one woman stayed behind. And she continued living on the island for the next 18 years until a sea otter hunting crew brought her to Santa Barbara. And she died seven weeks after she arrived, uh, likely of disease. We're not really sure. And the thing is, this story has attracted a lot of attention even before she was brought to the mainland because sea otter hunters would go to San Nicolas Island to hunt sea otters. And they would say, there's this woman out there. Uh, For some reason, she always runs away from us. We don't really understand why, uh, but we've captured her a few times, Uh, but she always escapes. So there is this fascination of how is it that this woman is living all by herself on this island? And newspaper newspaper accounts refer to her as the female Robinson Crusoe. And people were just fascinated by the story. And when she was brought to Santa Barbara, not to Los Angeles where the other Nicolenos were, no one in Santa Barbara could understand her language. And since no one could understand her language, no one could get her side of the story. So that created an opening for people to project their own values and assumptions onto her story. So there are many different versions of the story because there are so many gaps. Well, that's, that's really interesting that she was not brought to Santa Barbara, but instead was, excuse me, was not brought to Los Angeles, but instead was brought to Santa Barbara where people didn't understand her language. Why do you suppose that was? That's because George Nidever, who was the captain of the sea otter hunting crew that brought her to the mainland, he was from Santa Barbara. So that's why he brought her there. Uh, She lived in his household, uh, was probably treated as a servant. Uh, And uh, there were people that newspaper reporters that came to see her, some of them took some of her possessions, many of which have just been permanently lost. Uh, For example, her feather cape disappeared. We have no idea what happened to it. So what else do we know about her and her story? So what we do know about her um, is that she was between the ages of 40 and 60 when she was brought to the mainland in 1853. This is, of course, a very wide range because people just weren't really sure. She was most likely Tongva because San Nicolas Island is part of the uh, Tongva homeland. We have the reports from the sea otter hunters. We have some reports from the the newspaper reporters who met her. Uh, We have her burial record in the registers at Mission Santa Barbara because that's where she was buried. And She was also conditionally baptized by one of the priests there. Uh, So we have some details about her, but there's just so much that we don't know. Um, 
and and that's that's why we have i think some very creative stories about her <laughs> so uh tell us a little bit like what what kind of creative stories do we hear about her so probably the most famous one is island of the blue dolphins by scott odell it's a children's novel that he published in 1960 and this novel has been read by generations of Californians, uh, especially when they're in the fourth grade, because that's when children in California learn about the missions. So they learn about her. He portrays her as a 12-year-old child, which is very different from a 40 to 60-year-old woman. Um, in, the, in the novel, she... Uh, Tries, she jumps off the ship to get back to the island because her brother might have been left behind. And uh, it's, it's like this children's adventure novel, kind of like Swiss Family Robinson without the family. Yeah, my, um, it's funny. My daughter actually um, read Island of the Blue Dolphins uh, this year. She's in fourth grade. And so mm-hmm. she, it, she loved the book. And of course, we found out that Scott Odell was actually Odell Scott. <laughs> so that was another interesting uh, fiction surrounding that book. Um, one of the things that I've read about her is that, did she have a child? Supposedly she had a child, or maybe she had a child. What do you know about it, that? There was this account that she had leapt off the ship to save her child. Uh, most historians believe that that was melodrama invented by the people who reported this story. So in general, that we, we treat that with a lot of caution uh, because it, it fits too nicely with this very, very dramatic story. And it could very well have been that she just decided to stay on the island. And for that, we really have to understand the historical context of her, de- of her decisions. Because, yes, San Nicholas Island seems very isolated, but actually it was the site of a lot of international contact. Because uh, we had Russian and native Alaskan sea otter hunters that would come to the Channel Islands to hunt sea otters. In 1803, they started using American ships. So we've got Russian sea otter hunters. We have native Alaskan sea otter otter hunters, Americans joining in the picture, and they come to the islands. Well, their interactions with the native people didn't go too well. In 1814, they massacred some Nicolenios. Uh, we don't know all the details about this, but if the lone woman was between 40 and 60 years old in 1853, in 1814, she may have known the people that were victims of this massacre. They may have been her family members. Uh, she may have even witnessed it. We don't know for sure. Uh, but that would indicate that she would have a very good reason to be distrustful of foreigners coming to the island. So what what do we know about um, this sea captain, Nineveh, who brought her back to the mainland? So George Nineveh, he originally came from Tennessee 
and he found opportunity in doing the sea otter hunting in the Pacific area uh, because especially with the Russians, sea otter pelts were in high, high, high demand. And there's some indication that he was involved in illegal sea otter hunting activities. Um, now he's treated in many of the stories as this wonderful hero, this knight in shining armor who rescues this damsel in distress from her exile on the island. Uh, but there's indication that he even asked people in Santa Barbara if he could force the woman to get onto the ship, to go to, to, to leave the island, to go to the mainland. Uh, we don't know for sure if he used force. This is something that uh, is conveniently left out of the narrative, also from the other sea otter hunters who would visit the island. They don't say what level of violence she endured at their hands. Uh, so these, these, again, are gaps in the story that we have to figure out how, how do we most appropriately fill that in. So he brought her to the island. He's treated as a hero for doing that. Um, but the reality shows that he, he's a more com, com, uh, complicated human being. So we're talking about a time period when this is all, California is already part of the United States. But we, the sea otter trade is still, seems to be going very strongly, right? Right. And it's, it's really fascinating. I don't, I haven't, I've only begun to understand how much the sea otter trade was so important up and down the coast. And it's, it's up and down the coast all the way up through Alaska. It's really interesting to hear that, that several years into statehood, we're still, we still have a strong sea otter trade. Yes. Um, so what we see on the coast now, we see very, very few sea otters. Back in the 19th century, there were many, many more. Uh, their populations were basically decreased by all of this hunting. Um, so it, it hurt the carrying capacity of the population. So furs were just in big demand, especially the Russians. This is part of why the Russians came to California, was hunting sea otters, um, trying to get those pelts. So then this story, which is very well known, is, and, and as you mentioned, is, uh, is really an important part of, of a lot of California school children's uh, fourth grade education. You were involved then with an exhibit at the um, at the Santa Barbara Mission. So how exactly did you get involved in that? What was your role and, and what, what exactly then does the, does the exhibit do? Um, because I imagine the expectation is that, is that fourth graders are going to come visit. Right. So, I mean, for a long time, fourth graders have been interested in learning more about Corona. So they get really excited. They're coming to the mission. They're going to learn about Corona. The old exhibit was underwhelming. Uh, included a photo of a plaque commemorating the lone woman, a mano and matate from the night of her household, and a copy of Island of the Blue Dolphins. So that there wasn't really much there 
for people who are really engaged with the story, who wanted to learn more about her. Now, in 2017, during the summer, I was working there as an intern where I was cataloging historical documents. And Monica Orozco, the executive director, said, hey, we, we want to update our exhibit on the lone woman. Would you be interested in helping with the research? And I said, sure, I'd be delighted to. And so I started doing the initial research of the lone woman, who I didn't know a whole lot about at that time, except for Island of the Blue Dolphins, which I had read when I was a child. And so I'm learning about her story and seeing, wow, this is, this is way more complicated than was ever portrayed to me. So I, I was really interested in this, and we had a lot of brainstorming sessions trying to figure out how do we tell this very complicated story? Um, how do we deal with all these conflicting stories? Because we have accounts from sea otter hunters. We also have Russian accounts of things that were going on. Um, and different people get very attached to particular versions of the story. So the museum staff, they brought in an outside consultant uh, to design the exhibit. And the consultant said, hey, we can build your exhibit, but it's going to cost twice your original budget. So the answer to that was no. <laughs> and the staff said, okay, we're going to do this in-house. And it took a lot of work figuring out how to approach this exhibit because it is so complicated. And the solution that Monica had in the middle of the night when, you know, ideas always come to you was, okay, let's show how different types of scholars approach this story. So looking at what kind of sources would a historian use to understand her story? What kind of sources would an archaeologist use? Or an anthropologist, uh, in terms of a sociocultural anthropologist collecting oral histories. And also, how would a novelist approach this story? So getting those four basic types of scholars made it much easier to then say, okay, we can tell this complicated story because each type of scholar brings in a different complicated facet. So there are panels for each of the four types of scholars. And we show diverse faces in terms of gender and ethnicity so that kids can see themselves as potential future scholars. So they have different things about, okay, these are the sources that this scholar uses. What are the strengths and weaknesses of each approach? Really getting visitors to think about, okay, well, if you use these sources, but you don't use those, how do you make that decision? And how does that affect the story? So that is very important in designing this exhibit. Another really important thing was having hands-on acti activities for the kids because we know fourth graders, they are coming, they're really excited. They don't just want to listen to somebody lecture to them. So the museum staff tried to create kind of impressions 
of what life would be like on the island. So you have recorded sounds of wind and waves and seals. There's a recreation of the lone woman's hut. Um, this is kind of to, to give people a sense of the essence of it rather than being an exact recreation because we don't, we just don't have enough details for that. So we have a recreation of the hut. Uh, Maria, who is an expert seamstress, she did a lot of research on featherwork. So she went to New York museums. She also investigated Baja California indigenous featherwork, and she recreated the lone woman's feather cape. Now she used chicken feathers instead of cormorant feathers because chicken feathers are a lot easier to get. So just don't tell the kids that. Okay, excellent. So how long ago did you finish the exhibit and what's been the response? So from the initial brainstorming period until exhibit opening was two years. It was a long process. The brainstorming process in particular was just really long because we had to figure out how to tell this really complicated story and what threads of the narrative are important. How do we acknowledge people's sentimental connection with the story? And then how do we say, okay, you may have had these ideas about the story, but here's some new information that you, you might want to consider in understanding this. So a big part of this is promoting critical thinking skills, which in the common core curriculum is quite important. So this fits in with educational goals as well. Uh, there have been very good reviews of the exhibit. Um, before it was officially opened, uh, they had the docents come in because, of course, the docents are going to be the ones interacting with the visitors. And the docents said, this looks great. It's so wonderful. But we need a dog. The dog is important in the novel. The kids love the dog. We need a dog. So the staff decided, okay. We're going to research what would an island dog look like. So they did some research, found a photo that resembled what a dog from the island would have looked like. They photoshopped out the collar and then they put in the photo of the dog. So this is just one example of a way to acknowledge people's sentimental connection with the story but also look at what is the reality of what we know about the Lone Woman and San Nicolas Island. Uh, there was also a review from Author Adventures. There's a website where they look at different sites uh, connected with literature, books. And I have a quote here from them. Uh, quote, intended for all ages, the 21st century style exhibit visually depicts and explains the story through the eyes of anthropologists, historians, archeologists, writers, and educators. The room includes an activity table and replica of an island hut, welcoming the participation of young children. It is an example for all historic museums on how to best display a historic story while linking its relevance to today's world. So the staff is very proud of this exhibit because they were able to produce a professional looking exhibit without the outside consultant and came in under their original budget. 
So it, it was a win all around there. Yeah, that, that budget piece is always an important one, I think. But that's, um, those, are, those are real strong endorsements. So congratulations about that. In fact, I'm really fascinated to, to get down to Santa Barbara and see it. Where is uh, she buried? Where, where, can, where are her remains? So she is buried at Mission Santa Barbara. Um, there is a plaque commemorating her, but it's not the same as a grave marker because as was traditional at that time, the graves were not marked, uh, especially of indigenous people. So many people are buried at Mission Santa Barbara, uh, and you really have to go to the mission registers to see who they were because you don't have markers for all the graves. I see. So what about you? What are you working on now? What's your next um, big adventure in terms of uh, archaeology? So I am working on a dissertation project in northern Baja, California. So I am looking specifically at Mission San Vicente, San Vicente Ferrer, uh, where, which is where the Dominicans had the military headquarters of their mission system. Because the Dominicans took over the missions in Baja, California, after the Franciscans said, hey, we want to go up north to Alta, California. So Dominicans, you take over here, and, and we're going to found new missions. So I'm looking at the interactions between the Spanish and the indigenous Paipai, who were the indigenous group that entered Mission San Vicente Ferrer. And since Mission San Vicente Ferrer was the military headquarters, this is a way to understand how the effect of military force affects this process of culture shock and how people figure out how to navigate this. Uh, I'm comparing it with Mission Santa Catalina, which is also in Pai Pai territory, but was more inland, more isolated. They didn't have as big a military force there. Wow. Well, that, that sounds really exciting, and I'd love to, love to learn more. In fact, the, the Baja missions, I mean, so many of us in Alta, California, in today's California, don't know much at all about the Baja mission experience. And, of course, the, the physical remains of those missions are so much, how can I say, are there, they're just less, right? They're just less physical remains, uh, fewer physical remains to study and see. But at the same time, my understanding is that the, the presence of indigenous people is still pretty strong in those areas. And is that right? Uh, it depends on where you are in Baja. Uh, Kumeyaay, still very strong, still a, a strong Pai Pai community, uh, for example. In some of the other areas, a lot of the indigenous ancestry has been just absorbed into the general population. Uh, generally in Mexico, there's a very different perspective on indigeneity because in Mexico it's assumed that everyone has some indigenous ancestry whereas in the U.S. that's not the starting assumption. So it's a very different process and while the missions in northern Baja are adobe ruins this is actually really good for archaeology because most of the missions in Alta California were reconstructed 
which meant that all of the underlying archaeological deposits were disturbed or destroyed. So we lost a lot of the context to understand about the lives of the people who lived there. Whereas in Baja, yes, there's been some limited looting, but it hasn't been too bad and the deposits are still there. So it's actually a big opportunity to learn about the people who lived at these missions, how they made decisions, and what were the consequences of those decisions. Oh, wow. I had no idea. That's a really interesting way of looking at that. I, I, I never thought about that, that the fact that, I mean, it makes sense, but the fact that, that we don't have these rebuilt structures means that there's a lot more access to actually understand the um, the physical and the the archaeological record. That's really cool. Well, uh, I'm going to be really interested in knowing more about what you uncover, what you discover, and I hope that you'll keep us you'll keep us updated on that. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Well, Ellie, I want to thank you for this conversation. It's been really interesting, and as I as I mentioned, I'm really interested to get down and visit the um, visit the exhibit uh, with my kids, but also for my own sake. And I hope everybody else does too. It sounds like what you guys have done is really an example of what a 21st century, good, well done uh, museum exhibit can be. And also, I think it's going to help us understand the stories behind the mission era the early statehood era of California, the Rancho era, are much more complex than we give them credit for. It also depend a lot on the people who are telling the stories or the approach that they, that they take. And that's really important because I think that it makes things much more interesting, much more fascinating, um, because there are more layers to peel back. We understand that there are more layers to peel back. So thank you for helping do that for us. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, once again, thank you, Ellie Rareshaid, for sharing your experience and your, your scholarship with us. And we look forward to talking to you again. So Scott O'Dell's book, The Island of the Blue Dolphins, is a beloved work of fiction that takes its starting point from true events. The fact that the story and the true events diverge, in my opinion, in no way devalues the book. If anything, it tells us something about the storyteller's art. That is, that you can take a, an event, a fact, and weave a really engaging narrative out of that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you hew to the facts as they happened exactly. But by the same token, learning about the facts and the real events also sheds light on how little we know about some parts of California history. And especially in, in a case like this, where there are so many gaps to be filled in. And from that standpoint, I also liked how Ellie pointed out that the exhibit helps students understand how different methods can tackle the same subject. Archaeologists, historians, novelists all approach a subject from different starting points and they use different tools. And that makes sense because they all have different objectives in mind. Finally, the subject of the Baja California missions 
is one that I think we all need to know more about. It's easy to forget, and some people probably don't even know it, that there really are two Californias, and that for the most of the last 250 years, California meant both Alta and Baja California. And so our histories on both sides of the border are intertwined in a way that we often don't recognize. The story of the missions in Baja California therefore offers some really intriguing insights into this common history that we have. And I, like I said, I for one really recognize that I need to learn more about these missions and about the history of Baja California. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. Please share it. Let your friends and anyone else you know who might be interested know about it. Um, Writing a review is also important, say on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to this show, because that's the way that these organizations let others know who might be interested. So we really rely on you to get the word out about this podcast. So thank you very much. We've got a couple of more episodes coming up in this season of the California Frontier Podcast, and I think that you're going to enjoy them. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the California Frontier Podcast. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the California Frontier Project website at www.californiafrontier.net. If you have a question, comment, or a suggestion, make sure and drop me a line at damian at californiafrontier.net.